Hello, and welcome to Open to Criticism. I'm Wendy Lloyd, I'm a film critic, and this is my podcast about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it, and why it matters. This week, we're going back to the very start of cinema and discussing silent film and the golden age of Hollywood to find out how old films can serve a more modern perspective with critic, curator and film historian Pamela Hutchinson. Someone once asked me, you know, as a feminist and as a feminist film critic, how can I bear to watch so much cinema from the 1940s because so much of what you'll see on screen might be quite sexist and I think it's because I know that sexism exists. <laughs> and, you know, this is the way to make a feminist, make them watch things like Mildred Pierce, make them watch Stella Dallas and then they'll become a feminist. Pamela writes for titles including Sight and Sound, Empire and The Guardian and regularly appears on BBC Radio. She's curated film seasons on Marlena Dietrich, Asta Nielsen and Pre-Code Hollywood. More on that later. And her website, silentlondon.co.uk, is devoted to silent cinema. She's also written several books and her latest, a BFI Film Classics monograph on The Red Shoes, will be published on the 5th of October later this year. Pamela began by explaining how she came to be so fascinated by those early films. My interest in cinema sort of starts with classic cinema, just in much as, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't really go to the cinema. We, so well, I saw my first films on rainy days in half term on the te- television. So I always watched old films first. I sort of gradually, as I became a teenager, got really interested in cinema and started seeing things that were in my mind. But I did find that a lot of the films that I was being recommended in magazines and on the radio, they just, they didn't really speak to me. I didn't find anything that a 17-year-old girl could get excited about in them. So I suppose I knew that I had to sort of lean into the things I liked that maybe other people didn't like. And I sort of made the most of my BFI membership. (laughs) And I would find myself going to things purposely because I didn't know anything about them. And that's why I ended up going to see, you know, seven short fragments of French melodramas from the silent era instead of tripping off to see the new wave double bill. And so I suppose I've always just been interested in films that intrigue me and have a bit of mystery about them. Of course, I'm sort of slowly losing that mystery now because I've made silent and classic cinema basically my career. But uh, the mystery is is always there in uh, some some element or other. Yeah, I mean, this is it. You know, your life now as an as a film historian, um, which in itself is quite fascinating when you think about. Um, and I learned this, of course, from your amazing book, Thirty Second Cinema, um, <laughs> that eighty percent of silent cinema is no longer around. Um, do you find part of your work frustrating? Do you ever find holes in things that you go, "Oh, I'm going to be able to find this film. Oh no, it doesn't exist anymore." I mean, you do get quite excited when you hear about a film and then you realise that as far as everyone in the world is concerned, it may not exist. There are two exciting things that happen. And one is that people do find these films. Every so often you find something and, and, you know, that doesn't mean it always turns out to be the lost masterpiece that you hope. But the other is, so if you're working in a field where 80% of all silent films are lost, if you're working from that, you can't ever say that the story has been definitively written and a lot of what I do is about saying, well, you know, let's look again at the films. Let's look at the fragments. Let's, let's look at the films that were never made or that have been lost and what we know about them and find out what are the real stories that we have to tell because so often we go backwards. Here are the films we have, so they must be the most important ones. Or we go backwards. This is what we consider to be important now, so that must have been important in the silent era. But really, if you're looking at the long list of what people were watching and you have to use your imagination, that way you do the interesting history. 
Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, you know, silent film is where it all began. And then we got the talkies and, you know, and we, we move a little bit later. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about the code, the Hayes Code, because I think this is something that um, probably a lot of film fans don't know about or aren't fully aware of its impact. So perhaps you can give us a bit of background on that. And the Hayes Code very much sort of forms everything we think of in cinema when people are talking about what they do and don't want to see. It's a lot of it is informed by what we've always been told we should and shouldn't see. The Hayes Code came in, it's an industrial guy called Will Hayes, who was brought into Hollywood in the 1920s sort of to clean up Hollywood's act. And he did some really interesting things, like he set, helped to set up central casting, for example, so that young women coming to Hollywood can avoid the casting couch. But one of the things was he talked about the things that you shouldn't see on screen. And towards the end of the silent era, uh, Hollywood studios agreed to sign up to this code of don'ts and be carefuls, things that should and should not be seen on screen, which is to say that crime is always punished, that we don't see any um, homosexuality on screen, that we don't see any nudity on screen, that we don't see any bad language or disrespect to authority. The fun thing that happened in a way really for us is that there was this sort of period between 1929 and, and around 1935 when we knew what the rules were, Hollywood knew what the rules were, but no one was really capable of enforcing the code. So just before the code really finally comes in in 1935 and you have this very conservative uh, set of values in Hollywood, there's this period that we call pre-code where a lot of the studios were trying it on in every conceivable direction and uh, yeah, that's always quite entertaining. It's quite funny, isn't it? It's it's like the whole thing of, you know, if a parent says, don't do this, um, you do it. And that's kind of, it sounds like that's how Hollywood responded to the fact that they knew it was coming and that there were going to be these moral limitations on things. It made them kind of push the boundaries. Um, I wonder then what one would say in terms of the overarching understanding of, of the quality of those films at that time. What would you say? You mean the pre-code films? Yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, you know, you have some great stars and great directors, um, more more great stars are working in these films. There are many classic films from this period, things like the original Scarface that are sort of, you know, revered. There's something that elevates a pre-code film because it takes you by surprise. So they have the element of surprise because you see all the stars that you're used to seeing walking around behaving as they should and yet somehow they're smoking marijuana while we're relieving people of their jewels and you're thinking okay uh this is new so um you know when you know i've been working on grief cinema recently and you find oh this is a great performance by barbara stanwick say you might find things that are a little bit you know so so but you always have the element of surprise and um, we have absorbed the sort of conservative reactionary values of Hollywood. And even now the, the code doesn't exist. Uh, it's been replaced by something else. You know, you still see a certain conservatism in mainstream Hollywood cinema. And so there is a thrill in itself of seeing people playing with guns. <laughs> well, that's it. You mentioned Scarface there and gangster movies were a big thing, weren't they? Sort of pre-code and they really pushed the limits of, of on-screen violence at that time. And then you mentioned Barbara Stanwyck and a film like Babyface, which was made, came out in 1933. And in this, you know, she's playing this sort of damaged working class woman who um, sleeps her way to the top. And it's um, I, I watched it again this week because I thought I, I really want to kind of dip into that sensibility of pre-code. And like you said, it's quite surprising because you realise that there's they're just really saying quite a lot and, and getting away with it that you, you know just shortly afterwards they couldn't do. 
Yeah, and, you know, and there's lots that's in baby face that's quite shocking, you know, for the pearl clutches. You know, she walks, she follows the chap into the bathroom and she walks out wiping her face. And, <laughs> you know, I, I honestly don't know what that means, Wendy. I don't know. Uh, who, who could who could work that out? Yeah. Who could possibly know who could work that out? But um, what's really shocking, of course, about the story of the, the character that Barbara Samwick plays in Babyface is the other really strong element of pre-code cinema, which is social commentary. Mm. So she is in the position she's in because she comes from this deprived urban area because her single-parent father has been effectively pimping her out yeah. because she doesn't, you know, it's not like she's like, well, things are looking bad for me, but I guess I'll just apply to Harvard and become a lawyer. No, <laughs> she, you know, her way, her only way to get yeah. a good career. And it's quite clear from the film, actually, when she gets her job in the bank that she's quite good at it. Yeah. But yeah, she sleeps away to the top and she does that with a little bit of inspiration from Nietzsche. And when I tell you that pre-code films are surprising, that's... Yes, that's That's true, isn't it? The Nietzsche book that pops up a couple of times. And that's the thing, isn't it? You watch it now and you do see the social commentary. It certainly was really very apparent to me when I watched it the other night. Um, But I wonder how it was received at the time. How were critics receiving the pre-code films like Babyface? I mean, in a way, the social commentary is so obvious that not every single review is going to make a thing of it. It's the 1930s. You know, and just like now, people are obsessed with the cost of living and the difficulty of getting a job. Yeah. So to see a film that's got um, you know, disenfranchised working class people, that's got that's got homeless people, that's got a suggestion that law and order has slightly dissolved, that in itself isn't necessarily going to get commented on every single review. And mm. I happened to be reading a, an old review by a British critic the other day about um, a similar film with a new potential, you know, Warner Brothers, who was sort of intent on getting us very angry about something every week (laughs) you know I mean some people did notice that particularly a studio like Warner Brothers was very keen on these social commentary films and on putting that into the films they made that would otherwise be a musical or a gangster film or a drama about a a woman with uh, you know several different great poems who sleeps away (laughs) from the top of the bank (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you wrote an article previously about some quite progressive depictions of marriage pre-code as well, and 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 you know, not even in or only in that era, and women, you know, pushing the institution of marriage in films, kind of questioning it and sort of rejecting it in some ways, and films like that, and and discussions about marriage, how were they received at the time? It's really interesting when you think about marriage and Hollywood because. Um, the divorce rate at this period is quite low and marriage is very much an institution that was those holding up you've got to say the Hayes Code um, doesn't want to show you sort of infidelity or any kind of suggestion that would disrespect the institution of marriage so infidelity must be punished for example yeah and yet if you love cinema you're reading the fan magazines all these people are getting married and divorced, married and divorced. And so there's this idea that F, that divorce might be frowned upon, but it's no secret. Right. What you get in the pre-code period is you get some fantastic critiques of marriage and how damaging it would be, particularly thinking about a director like Dorothy Arzner, who made a couple of films actually pre and post-code that really suggest that marriage is not the best thing that can happen to a woman necessarily because it can be quite stifling and constricting and, and pushes her into a, some very limited role in life. And I mean, that's obviously interesting to us because these are great films and Dorothy Arsenal was sort of an out lesbian who lived with the uh, choreographer Marion Morgan. And so she, uh, she definitely rejected the sort of heteronormative lifestyle. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that obviously you mentioned there, you know, a key early female director who 
I certainly know from chatting with Helen O'Hara, our fellow critic and the writer of Women versus Hollywood and how in early cinema women were doing great guns and then kind of got pushed out. So it's 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 interesting, isn't it, that these kind of stories, it, it all came together with the early years of, of cinema. But then things conspired, really, didn't they? You've got the code coming in and then you've also got men taking over and wanting to do their stories, as it were. And so these issues very particular to, to women and progressing their position in society got got shoved aside. Yeah, and you know, in the 1920s, so in the teens, you've got a few, quite a few female directors talking about, but in the 1920s and the 1930s, you know, women are the primary audience for cinema, quite substantially so. And so even after the code, you have a lot of what people often refer to as like the shop girl films, films about young women who are sort of going out, striding out by themselves in the world and, and doing great things. So even if films are being made by men, if it means it's been directed by a man, they're often written by women or they're written and they're written for women. Mm. Of course, in the 40s, you do get a war which sort of skews what people want to see. But the industry is being increasingly led by men and there's a change in the kind of genres that we see and there's a change in the kind of stories that we tell. And if you have the sort of Christian-inspired conservatism of the Hayes Code, you very specifically limit what we can see in terms of sex and love and marriage and, you know, even childbirth. These are the things that can't be filmed. And so you limit the kind of stories you can tell about women's lives. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned there the war coming along and sort of post-war, let's move on to the genre of film noir, which is, um, I mean, historically, this is a big favourite of film critics, isn't it? The artistic element to it, the danger in it. Um, I mean, that that really was, um, you know, a real shift. And as you said, uh, a lot of the stories one might consider to be a little bit more macho. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, and yet you also can have sort of great crossovers with melodramas and things like Mildred Pierce, you know, a film with the Joan Crawford playing a woman who rejects her marriage and has family life in order to have a career and the ending of that film and the message of that film really is that bad things happen when women do this. But I don't think anyone ever remembers that when they're talking about how much they enjoy Mildred Pierce, you know, that 1930s novel and that 1940s film, want to tell women to get back into their home. But everybody just remembers how wonderful Joan Crawford looks in a fur coat. So, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, if you think about film art, I mean, artistically, it's super exciting for me because a lot of it is you have the talent and the particular uh, aesthetic that comes directly from the silent era, from European cinema in the silent era, and moves into Hollywood where they have all these great resources and, and, and wonderful stars. And so you have that combination of two fields of cinema that I love. The femme fatale is such an interesting type to think about because, again, you know, the femme fatale is a plot device to lead the man into his narrative quest. And the femme fatale will almost always be punished at the end. And yet she's become this thing, this sort of source of quite a lot of power for people to see the femme fatale on screen, to see those characters and, and find something that is glamorous and seductive, but also incredibly disruptive. So disruptive that femme fatale never uh, plays by the rules. And so we get so much more from those films than perhaps we're meant to. Yeah, but that's an interesting one, isn't it? The femme fatale, because um, as you said there, you know, there's a there's an element of power for that role. But is it all relative? I mean, is it like that was kind of pretty much the only one of the few powerful characterizations at that time for women? And, and is she now, when we look back at it, and obviously everything's contextual, so it's not about slamming those films for what they were, but is the femme fatale a bit more problematic now? Oh, I mean, she's immensely problematic. I mean, you literally have a woman who is, is who brings death by her very <laughs> seductive power. I mean, what you've got 
the same time that Phil Moore is flourishing, you've got the women's picture. We have these great roles for women where they do talk about being older and vulnerable and, and things like that. So you are seeing lots of interesting roles for women in the 40s. But yeah, they all very much rely on the context of the day. You know, someone once asked me, you know, as a feminist and as a feminist film critic, how can I bear to watch so much cinema from the 1940s and say earlier? And, you know, because so much of what you'll see on screen might be quite sexist. And, you know, I think it's because I know that sexism exists. <laughs> and, you know, and some people say, you know, this is the way to make a feminist, make them watch things like Mildred Pierce, make them watch Stella Dallas, and then they'll become a feminist. You know, it's interesting in that it's so blatant. Mm. And, I'm not really interested in saying, well, a few characterizations in that film aren't really very empowering, so I'm just not going to watch it at all. I think there's something interesting working out how films let you down, how films surprise you, how films do disrupt or conform. And is that based on the screenplay or the source novel or the characterization? Is it the performance? You know, anything that Betty Davis does on screen suddenly seems fabulous. So, you know, you have all these different contributions and what is it that's interesting about it? I get far more depressed about a sort of reactionary conservative film made today than they very much are. Yes. Well, no, and I, and I get that. And obviously you said at the beginning that, you know, you felt when you, you know, you were kind of growing up and getting into film that you felt let down by the films of the day. Um, let's talk about then rom-coms, because obviously that's something that is a genre that has, has in some ways moved through some interesting incarnations. Is it fair to say that the screwball comedies were the sort of beginnings of rom-coms or were they happening in the silent era? You definitely get films that are romantic comedies in the silent era, absolutely. I mean, someone like Mary Pickford, she's constantly making films. You get a film like My Best Girl or something like that. I think the rom-com, though, when we say that, and you know, obviously it's a dirty word, you have to pretend you don't like them, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, which would be depressing, wouldn't it, if you never watch them? And they're a very set form to that genre. And one of the things I feel about rom-coms is that obviously the idea is that someone is a little bit witty and then they meet their fellow and then that's the end of the story. Um, and so it can seem quite old-fashioned, but to me, like, of all the things that women can do creatively is telling their own stories and cracking jokes. I think that's one of the most <laughs> best things to see women do on screen. So the rom-com as a very much feminized genre, a genre that that is historically, we've been told it's marketed to women, written by women. It's such an interesting example of popular film culture actually absorbing some of this need for female stories. I always think it's it, interesting that you said about Screwball because that's so great. I love Screwball. <laughs> I recently rewatched Pretty Woman, a film that absolutely outraged me at the time um, because, you know, it's probably sort of sexist ending. But of course, that's constantly referring to the great Screwballs and the great comedies of the 30s and 40s. And it's interesting to me that that film seems sort of even more old-fashioned than the films it's referring back to. And, you know, of course, it's very funny. I shouldn't, I can't pretend it isn't. Well, it's a really interesting point about the Pretty Woman thing, because similarly, I, well, I suppose I loved it at the time and then went through kind of understanding how horrific it is. And it's, you know, what, what, what is the, well, how, how did I think this was um, gorgeous and romantic? But then I recently listened to the You Must Remember This podcast by Karina uh, Longworth. And she is um, similar to you. She's, you know, she's kind of like an archivist and she's really interested in the historiography of, of films and going back and looking at how they were talked about at the time. And she doesn't episode on Pretty Woman and it was absolutely fascinating because it really 
shifted my understanding and made me realise, not least in terms of the characterization of uh, Vivian, that Vivian doesn't actually have to change. And there's all this stuff that kind of talks about how she's actually powerful in a way that I would never have understood. And it's not just the lazy versions of, you know, she's powerful because she owns her body. It's much more sophisticated than that. And I suppose I bring that up also because it's a really good example, isn't it, about how we're always going to be revising how we see films of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I hate that idea that someone would enjoy something and then they would read one thing and they go, oh, God, I can't like it anymore. It's like, you know, yeah. you know worst things have happened and you'd like to film with a slightly aggressive <laughs> ending. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to watch Wildred Pierce again in the near future, don't you worry. And, I mean, there's always another story to be told about film history. And I think Karina Longworth does that beautifully. For example, you know, I, I never was a huge fan of Pretty Woman, but I read recently about, I'm sure she talks about this on the podcast, which I haven't quite got to yet, uh, that lots of women in Hollywood turned down that role because they didn't want mm. to play that character. And so obviously it, one of the things, one of the many things you can say about Pretty Woman, apart from the fact that they gifted us the world's best shopping scene, which I love <laughs> to death, yes, um, <laughs> is that it, it was Julie Roberts' career and she's so funny and so fabulous and so elegant and such a great film star and always have a sense of humour about herself as well when, you know, if I was doing Roberts, I'd probably be quite serious about how brilliant I am. But yeah, so, you know, there's always another thing to say. That is a film that has quite a lot of female solidarity and so forth in it. And, and as a historian as well as a critic, nothing is worthless. I'm interested in everything. I want to know about all the films that people hated at the time or loved at the time that we now have completely different opinions about. I want to know what people were really watching. You know, if we think about film history, sometimes... It acts like everyone just woke up one morning and said, today I'm going to watch Citizen Kane and then I'm going to think about film differently. It's not true at all. They were queuing up to see some screwballs and some Becky Davis movies. You know, if people watched it, it's definitely of interest to me. If it doesn't exist, it's still of interest. <laughs> and you might try and find it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so the, the rom-com thing is is interesting in terms of its development, though, isn't it? Because is it fair to say that, I mean, I guess all films are, but there's something about rom-coms that they're very much a reflection of the sexual politics of the time. And that you were saying about going back and looking at things rather than saying, I'm so offended, I'm going to turn it off. It's really informative, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I watch westerns and I sort of wonder like how like my you know my father's generation of men grew up to be nice people you know um yeah it's really interesting and you know one of the great things about rom-coms is they they can be very reflective of social attitudes they can invent ways that we have to talk about relationships if you think about a film like when Harry met Sally for example how many times have we had a conversation about love and relationships that's sort of based on the ideas introduced in that film Mm. they're a great forum for female creativity you know I recently just had the pleasure I'd not seen it to a shame but of watching Crossing the Land Sea directed by Joan Micklin Silver you know so many great female writers and directors working in that field and talking about experiences that are very sort of unique and particular to their lives and that's always fabulous and you know sometimes you know you will watch it and think god I'm glad I wasn't dating when I was a teenager the same time as my mother or something like that yeah but um (laughs) 
very often I realise that we haven't come as far as I'd like. Well, that's the thing, is, and that's what I realise, you know, you, you can get very smug about where you think you are and where we think we are now, having had Me Too, we're in a Me Too era, we've got BLM, we've got all these things that are, you know, can make us feel like, oh, we're on top of it all now. But the reality is, in the, is that in 10, 20 years, something else will reflect back to us from this time. And I really, that really hit me over the head when I, uh, a little while ago, I did a review on the radio of um, You've Got Mail. I think it must have been its 25th anniversary or something. And I hated that film at the time, which of course is based on Shop Around the Corner. And I felt like it kind of brought its very dated sexual politics into um, the 90s version. The sexual politics of that time was far less progressive than I thought. And it really is a, it documents that very well. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned Me Too, I think, because to me, like the, the point of Me Too is is actually admitting what we all knew. You know, it's saying, you know, the saying that these things just will go on just because we're not talking about them. There is a power in giving something a name. Mm. And you also mentioned BLM. I mean, exactly, you know, you shouldn't need to say that Black Lives Matter. The point is that we do. The point is that you need to say Me Too. You have to say that these things happen. And so... Any kind of cultural artifact, I guess, that reflects things. I mean, not that anything, as far as I remember, and you've got mail, it comes close to those two issues. But anything that reflects how people really live their life is important. And, you know, one of the reasons why I'm sort of more comfortable, perhaps, um, watching older films when there might be outdated attitudes and things like this is you can't delete them because you can't pretend that we were never as racist as we were in, um, you know, films of the 50s and 60s we can't pretend that we've always been open-minded about people's gender and sexuality and we can't pretend that we've always been supporting women in the workplace that's not true that would be a lie and that would be fundamentally dishonest and you know there is actually i suppose that is maybe where some of my kind of more values-based criticism comes into the work i do because i think we have to face up to who we are and film helps us do that yeah. And I think it's interesting as well also with regard, say, specifically women's stories and films about sort of um, more female, shall we say, subjects, which is, as we know, have always been pushed into women's stories are for women to watch. And and men's, men watch men's stories, women watch men's and women's stories. And so perhaps now... I don't know, and maybe this comes into the work that you do. Are you finding that there's more of a willingness to commission you know, sort of articles that dig into that older cinema and kind of unpack things to do with women particularly that in the past, you know, commissioners for for articles and pieces on criticism might have just not been interested in, you know, because there is now a recognition, hang on, we really have neglected an awful lot of stories, not least in terms of what we write about and talk about as critics. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happens if, and I do spend quite a lot of time looking at archives of, of magazines, sort of highbrow and lowbrow, and of newspaper criticism, films by Lois Weber, by Joan Micklin Silver, by Agnes Varda, by, you know, Muriel Box, they come out, they are released, they are reviewed, they are often described as good or great. And yet, they're not necessarily the people who end up on the front of the magazines. Mm. They're not the people that get the big, long interviews. If you're looking for coverage of, um, people's career either contemporarily to their the work being made or, or sort of subsequently they're not getting that much fuss made about them and you see these sort of drive-by comments in reviews you know I was reminded when um, Greta Gerwig's Ladybird came out reading reviews that said well this woman doesn't really have any real problems and there's not much there's not much at stake here 
And it's exactly how people talked about Noah's Web of Film. They say, well, it's just, you know, sort of middle class person who doesn't have money or it's just a shop girl and can't afford some shoes. These these things aren't important. Mm. And so we, we see the films, but we just don't see them in the sort of the right way. So now I often do get commissioned to write articles like, look at this great female film director. Wasn't her work really interesting? Where I get cynical, where I worry about it is... Even then, then we're telling these stories about sort of this one great director or these few great directors. In 20 years' time, will I or someone like me be still writing these articles because we forget about them all over again? Because we've written, oh gosh, didn't you know that Wendy Toy was quite talented? And then 20 years later, someone finds her films again and says, well, look at this, Wendy Toy is actually brilliant. How do we keep making sure that these people are part of all the conversations? You know, because... It's very nice for me to write an article about Muriel Box or Agnes Wilder or Jane Mick and Silva. I have a great time. But we should also be trying to work out a history of cinema that includes these people as fundamental and as mainstream and, you know, shouting them from the rooftops. Well, exactly. And I think it, it's a really interesting thing you've picked up on there in terms of the magazines that you've noticed this because it, it all plays into it, doesn't it? And it's it, not least. And I mean, that's, you know, that's why I'm doing this podcast is about talking about how we talk about these things, because it's all well and good, the film's coming out. And now there is greater diversity in terms of storytelling. But we still have to question, yes, but who's getting all the money still? And who's, as you said, who's getting the front covers? And that has to shift for a film to kind of have a greater legacy, doesn't it? Yeah, I think a lot of things happen when a film made by a woman comes out. And, you know, we obviously have the sort of classic Catherine Hardwick and Twilight thing where she makes this smash hit film and, and so they give all the sequels to the chaps. But also I think as critics, we have to think about how we talk about these people and come with these people. I remember the excitement, absolutely, as a young woman of, of seeing the issue of Sight and Sound arrive that had Sophia Coppola on the front. Not just because I thought, wow, hello, Sophia Coppola, but I thought, oh, they finally put a woman director on the cover. Yeah. And that's marvellous. But also, immediately I'm thinking about Sophia Coppola as a woman director rather than her own interesting artist. So one of the things we do when a woman has success is we start talking about women in film, which may or may not have value considering the film and the context. But we also um, we have a tendency to judge very much judge why has a woman made this film well you know she's made a film that is quite progressive but then it's not very progressive so basically it's awful you know and and we put all this moral judgment on people's films that you know there's a lot of women out there who just want to make a great slasher movie or you know just want to make a great rom-com and they don't want to sort of hold up Western civilization while they do it. <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? If a woman makes a film and then the film is scrutinised for all the versions of it that it wasn't, yeah. as well as the film that it was. Yeah. Um, whereas you would never do that with a male filmmaker. And uh, yeah, it's something that as critics, we have to check ourselves on that. And I think it probably goes like double and triple for, you know, people of colour who are making films, you know, and I know definitely like in the queer film space, there's an awful lot of well, this isn't the lesbian film I wanted to see, mm. or it is. And therefore, you know, we're going to get quite obsessed with it. And so, you know, we make things very hard for ourselves. And I think it's it's often about the fact that these films raise quite difficult questions. And then we sort of want to deflect that somehow. And now a film, I think I think you really liked, and I didn't like as much, but that's not a problem, and was a promising young woman. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, I remember being very horrified by the end of that film and very uncomfortable about certain aspects of it. But I wasn't interested in going all around and saying, I hate this film, I do not like this film, because 
I recognise so much of that film in the value was partly because it asked all these difficult questions. It raised this this really quite shocking idea about female revenge and how that might be achieved. Mm. And you can tell from the coverage around it that a lot of people were wanting to talk about it in very sort of very um, offended or very upset or very censorious ways. Yeah. I mean, I think a film such as that that's so provocative on the issue of, of sexual assault or rape, for example, and a rape culture, it does two things that really, really, really annoy a lot of people. One, it suggests that rape culture exists and that women, are particularly women, but, you know, people are being sexually assaulted. And, you know, unfortunately, that's true. And so it shouldn't be upsetting that people say it. It should be upsetting that it happens. And the other is just the age-old thing, um, which is that it centres a female story. And most, so, so many films have women as complete bystanders. Mm. You know, when I review films for Sight and Sound, we do shorter synopses now, but we used to write longer synopses. And so I'd find myself watching the female characters as a critic, thinking about their performances, thinking about their clothes, thinking about what they do, you know, how they're used, what, what their story is. And then when I write the narrative synopsis, I don't even have to mention their name yeah. because they're completely irrelevant to the plot. And so daring to have a film in which women are essential to the plot is still an incredibly provocative act and is still a very disruptive act. And you know, if you think that we were talking about film from 1933 that does that, and now we're talking about films from the 2020s that do that, and they're still causing all this kerfuffle, um, I think we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, so you kind of bring it back to the beginning very nicely there, because it does kind of, it suggests that if anybody is going to be recognising that and feeling that, it's you, because you're, you're, you're delving way back and then you're, you're watching stuff that comes out now. Is it, is it depressing? Um, I mean, you know, I said things I like to think about as I like to think about cinema as still being quite young compared to, you know, literature or art, you know, very, very young. We're only just, you know, only just rounded past our first century. I'm interested in films that feel young, that feel like they're coming up with new ideas and, you know, that feel, feel like they've got the confidence to say something that they want to say about society. So I get very excited when I see a classic film or film from the classic era that I think is exciting to me and I watch a Dorothy Osmond film that I haven't seen or so on. But, you know, I still see films that are very explicitly channeling that kind of power. The film that I always think of when I think about the pre-code films that I love, the film that came out recently, um, Hustlers by Lorene Scafaria, completely, exactly. It could have been made in 1933, except you probably would have had um, less glossy uh, flesh on show. Uh, but, you know, very much has that spirit of saying, you know, what can we get away with? What can we try? And let me show you some women you're going to really like, you know. You're going to really like watching. Why not like them? Like them? <laughs> Who cares about that? Critic, curator and film historian Pamela Hutchinson reminding us that film is still a relatively young medium and that examples of its youthful enthusiasm, both now and in the classics, are something to celebrate and enjoy. And if you're interested in learning more about the history of movies, I cannot recommend enough Pamela's book, 30 Second Cinema, which guides you through the eras, genres and key people and points you to must-watch films. That's it for this time. Keep those reviews and ratings coming in, please. They are very much appreciated. And if this is your first visit to the podcast, I hope you'll be checking out the rest of the series. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Open2Criticism, where two is the number two. That way you can stay up to date with guests and film info. 
Next time, we're discussing critic identity and how the assumed white male worldview of film has created some problematic verging on the ludicrous inaccuracies that are now starting to be called out by BIPOC critics, including my guest, Hannah Flint. It's the same with Star Wars as what Bob Sagan said. It was like, why does everyone look like me? He said that in an interview back in the 70s. And I went to literally last year after I wrote the book, I went to Tunisia and went to Mos Espa and I'm like... No white people could survive in this heat. <laughs> no, Obi-Wan Kenobi would be like, no, no. <laughs> Open to Criticism is written, produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. See ya. <laughs>